You're listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, we're going right back to basics and offering a way into Burgess's writing for newcomers and those who want to learn more about him. Burgess's novels span multiple genres and the breadth of his interests make him difficult to sum up. Burgess is best known as a novelist, but he was also a composer, a journalist, a teacher, a screenwriter, a playwright and a poet. He was also known as something of a raconteur, a quality that meant he was a fixture on television chat shows in both the UK and the USA in the 1970s and 1980s. All of this was from relatively humble beginnings in Manchester, far away from the literary establishment in London or the spires of Oxford and Cambridge. In this episode, we're looking at Burgess's literary career in a largely chronological way. Though there is one novel out of the 33 he wrote that provides the most obvious point of entry into his work. His 1962 novel A Clockwork Orange tells the futuristic story of Alex's journey from violent droog into brainwashed victim. This is Burgess's most famous novel, in large part because of Stanley Kubrick's film adaptation which came out in 1971 and introduced the iconic bowler hats and all-white costumes. A Clockwork Orange is written in an invented language called Nadsat, a blend of Russian, Romany, Cockney rhyming slang, Elizabethan English and more. This gives the novel another worldly quality, a rich and strange future created through a language that readers must work out for themselves. Burgess's intention was that the language should be understood through the context of each word in the text and that the book should not contain a glossary. He worked very carefully, particularly in the opening pages, to lead the reader through the Nadsat vocabulary. Here is Burgess reading the opening of A Clockwork Orange. Note how he takes his time to explain the more out-there Nadsat words to his audience. What's it going to be then, eh? There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie and Dim. Dim being really dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar, making up our rasodox, What to do with the evening? A flip, dark, chill winter bastard, though dry. The Corova milk bar was a milk plus mesto, and your mate or my brothers have forgotten what these mestos were like. Things changing so scorry these days, and nobody uh, very quick to remember. Newspapers not being read much neither. Well, what they sold there was milk plus something else. They had no license for selling liquor, but there was no law yet against prodding some of the new vestiges which they used to put into the old Moloko, so you could peat it with Velocet or Synthimesque or Drenchrom, or one or two other vestiges which would give you a nice, quiet, or a show fifteen minutes, admiring Bog and all his holy angels and saints in your left shoe, with lights bursting all over your mosg. Or you could peat milk with knives in it, as we used to say, and this would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of dirty twenty-to-one, And that was what we were peating this evening I'm starting off the story with. Our pockets were full of deng, so there was no real need, from the point of view of crasting any more pretty Polly, to tolchock some old vec in an alley and vidy him swim in his blood while we counted the takings and divided by four, nor to do the ultraviolent on some shivering, starry, grey-haired pizza in a shop and go smecking off with the till's guts. But as they say, money isn't everything. On its surface, A Clockwork Orange is a work of dystopian fiction. Its bleak future world and domineering state are hallmarks of the genre. But Burgess uses this setting to talk about the importance of free will. When we first meet Alex, 
he is able to exercise his free will, although he chooses to be evil. Despite this, Burgess makes Alex a more complex character than this behaviour would suggest. His love of Beethoven and other classical music, and his loathing of pop, contrasts with his violent and bloodthirsty life on the streets. After he undergoes the experimental Ludovico technique, he is unable to choose the way he behaves, and crucially unable to listen to his beloved Beethoven. Burgess's central point to this examination is that for free will to exist, human beings must reconcile themselves to the possibility of evil, as well as the possibility of good. He describes his view of the novel in the introduction to the American edition. It is inhuman to be totally good, as it is to be totally evil. The important thing is moral choice. Evil has to exist along with good, in order that the moral choice may operate. Life is sustained by the grinding opposition of moral entities. While dystopian fiction is not Burgess's typical genre, A Clockwork Orange has links to his other fiction through the literature he was reading and his general life experiences. Books such as Aldous Huxley's Brave New World Revisited and B.F. Skinner's Walden II helped Burgess create the scenes of brainwashing and behavioural manipulation or novels such as Yevgeny Zemyatin's We and It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis helped Burgess envision Alex's dystopian world. But some of the crucial inspirations for A Clockwork Orange were not in literature but Burgess's own life. Despite the novel's ambiguous setting, Burgess modelled the droogs after the Manchester gangs he witnessed growing up. But his depictions of violence were also inspired by a brutal mugging suffered by his wife Lynn during the London Blitz. By the time he visited Leningrad in 1961, large parts of the novel had already been written, yet he was inspired by the Soviet architecture. Alex's home in the novel is a recreation of the Leningrad flat blocks that Burgess discovered in the city, right down to the large murals of workers toiling over machines. Leningrad also provided texture to the characterization of Alex and his droogs, as Burgess witnessed the Stilyagi, Russian gangs of youths dressed in fashionable clothes and at ease with public displays of violence. It is not clear from the novel where the story is set, but in his memoir, Burgess described his setting as a sort of compound of my native Manchester, Leningrad and New York. A Clockwork Orange also found its genesis in the years after Burgess returned from a teaching post in colonial Malaya. Returning to Britain after four years away and suffering from a strange illness, Burgess was struck by the phenomenon of the teddy boys and the nascent mods and rockers who would congregate in the coffee shops of London. These gangs, he noticed, seemed to embody a disappointment with Britain's post-war decline as a world power. Having just witnessed the end of the British Empire in Malaya, Burgess was perhaps more sensitive to this than most British people. Burgess lived in South East Asia between 1954 and 1958, and it proved to be crucial for his development as a writer. His first novel, Time for a Tiger, was published in 1956 and proved to be a textured portrait of life in Malaya. Time for a Tiger is the first novel in what would come to be called the Malayan Trilogy, along with The Enemy in the Blanket and Beds in the East. These novels tell the story of Victor Crabb, a teacher in the colonial service in the dying days of Britain's involvement in the Malay Peninsula. 
Crab is ostensibly the main character of the novels, but Burgess's focus on the ensemble cast brings the narrative to life. These characters add humour to the novels, and help depict the relationships between the native Malays and their British colonisers. For example, in Time for a Tiger, the plight of larger-than-life Nabby Adams is key to the novel's success. He is an officer in the colonial police force, but spends his days searching for beer, which he prefers to drink warm. He also does not socialise solely at the colonial clubs, but frequents the local shacks that sell beer. He has also forged alliances with his Malay counterparts, including Aladad Khan, a fellow police officer who lusts after Crab's wife. Here Burgess talks about his approach to depicting Malaya in fiction. Why this urge to record Malaya in fiction? Surely it had been done before, and very adequately by William Somerset Maugham. True enough, but it was very much an outsider's Malaya, the planters and their wives, bridge in the club and adultery in the district officer's bungalow. The Chinese and the Indians were very shadowy figures, and the Malays were reduced to a pair of obsequious brown feet on the veranda. However my own literary equipment might be, at least I got to know the people. Indeed, I got to know the Malays rather better than Joseph Conrad. I taught their sons. I spoke their language. Before he wrote the novels that make up the Malayan trilogy, Burgess thought he would be a serious novelist and was surprised to learn that he was producing comic novels. In an article from 1981, he remembers this realisation. The book is humorous rather than angry, and its humour is probably its main virtue. I discovered I was a funny writer, and I had never seen myself as anything but a creature of gloom and sobriety. Despite their humour, Burgess's Malayan novels have a higher ambition, that of accurately depicting Southeast Asia at the end of empire. In the introduction to the collected Malayan trilogy, Burgess describes this ambition. To many, the Far East hardly exists, except as material for televisual diversion. It is hoped that the novel, which has its own elements of diversion, may, through tears and laughter, educate. This blend of humour and the impulse to educate is apparent in many of Burgess's books. In 1963, he published Inside Mr Enderby, the first novel in a series about the dirty poet Francis Xavier Enderby, Burgess's finest comic creation. The comedy of the Enderby books is blended with intricate descriptions of places such as Morocco and New York, comments on poetry and the production of poetry, and textual interactions with other poets such as Shakespeare and Gerard Manley Hopkins. Enderby's poems are also a key part of the text. Here is Burgess reading a poem originally published in Inside Mr Enderby. Nymphs and satyrs come away. Faunus, laughing from the hill, rips the blanket of the day from the paunched and dirty will. Each projector rears its snout, truffling the blackened scene, Till the villa's lights gush out, Forstelungen, on a screen. Doxes mat to silver white, All their trappings of the sport, Lax and scattered, In this light, merge and lock To smooth and taut. See the rockets shoot afar, Ah, the screen was tautest then, Tragic the parabola, As the sticks reeled down again. 
The Enderby series of novels can be seen, in many ways, as a distillation of Burgess's preoccupations that stayed with him throughout his career. They have an international viewpoint. They enter into dialogue with some of Burgess's primary influences, and he uses the comic narrative to explore other forms of literature. The Enderby novels share this literary foundation with another novel that was published in 1964, Nothing Like the Sun. Nothing Like the Sun is Burgess's first foray into historical fiction and tells the story of Shakespeare's life from his early years in Stratford to his writing for the stage in London and his eventual affair with the Dark Lady of the Sonnets. The novel recreates Elizabethan England in much the same way that Burgess described the exotic locations of his earlier novels. There is an eye for detail in the descriptions of the Globe Theatre and the day-to-day -day life of Shakespeare's London. But Burgess's depiction comes alive in the intelligent use of language. There are bursts of Elizabethan slang and Shakespearean vernacular, but the language also owes a debt to another of Burgess's key influences, James Joyce. Here's Burgess reading an extract from the epilogue of Nothing Like the Sun. I am near the end of the wine, sweet lords and lovely ladies, but out there the big wine is being poured, thin, slow, grey. Never more shall I taste the oncoming of this particular darkness, but I shall not be sorry to go. I am not seduced to this life by the dainty lusts clothed in cold green and clean linen of an English spring. If you plunge into that dark there, you will emerge at length into a raging sun and all the fabled islands of my east. And that is what I shall be doing tonight, off like a bird. I see you have your pennies ready, ladies. Twitch not, hop not about, nor writhe so. I shall not be long now. Let's swell a space on the irony of a poet desperately wringing out the lust of his sweetness while the corrosives closed in. It was she, though, the goddess, unseen as yet, but stirring and kicking like a fetus that dictated the titles. For this was indeed much ado, and that what they willed, and the other as they liked it. Meanwhile, that bud I carried opened like a pomegranate. The roseate macules and papules blossomed and later grew to a tint of delectable copper, coins over my body, the hint of a leopard's, not a tiger's hide. When it left, it left a stain as of dirty eaters. All my parts must be horse parts. Thou wilt make a ghost yet, see if thou wilt not. That is a very graveyard voice. Had I had the clown's gift, I could have ambled about the stage to great laughter, drawing out teeth with little pain, blinking from gummy eyes, breaking off bits of fingernail. Here, look you, is demonstrated the frangibility of the body. The wordplay in the novel is half Shakespeare, half Joyce, and there is a conscious homage to Joyce's hellfire sermon in a portrait of the artist as a young man. The critic Harold Bloom described both the Enderby novels and Nothing Like the Sun as being products of Burgess's love of Joyce. He wrote, Whether writing about Enderby, a vision of Burgess himself as uncompromising poet, or Shakespeare, Burgess truly writes about Joyce's Paul D. Bloom, and so about Joyce himself. Burgess loved Joyce so much that he frequently wrote about his role model. He wrote two books about Joyce, Here Comes Everybody and Joyce Brick the former a plea for Joyce to be seen as a novelist for the common reader, the latter about the language of Joyce's work. 
He also edited A Shorter Finnegan's Wake, an effort to make Joyce's most complex novel more accessible to everyone. He made a television documentary titled Silence, Exile and Cunning, in which he travelled to Dublin to explore Joyce's world. He also taught Joyce at several American universities. Here's Burgess attempting to explain what he loves about Joyce's writing in 1968. So many things draw me to Joyce. The dignity of the exile, the silence that won't complain nor explain, most of all, the miracle of the language. And I also admire, more than I can say, the manner in which Joyce has transmuted the ordinary stuff of life, the lowly, to something glorious and eternal. The stale bit of bread becomes the divine body. The streets of a very ordinary city are turned into the streets of a divine city, although still made by men's hands. What every artist can still learn from Joyce is this need to look at the ring of a Guinness glass on a pub table, the sawdust on the floor, the ordinary trivial details of ordinary living. And this confluence of the high and the low is seen in the eternal artist himself, the young artist Stephen Dedalus, the poet with his dreams of great literature, who makes his philosophy out of Aquinas and Aristotle, but still is poor, ill-dressed, near-sighted, wandering the streets of his native city till he knows them by heart, concerned with the music of the spheres, but preoccupied also with the last cigarette in the packet. Burgess's immersion in the work of his literary hero is reflected in his own fiction. Take, for instance, A Vision of Battlements. This novel was the first Burgess wrote, yet it was not published until 1965. It was inspired by his wartime service in Gibraltar, but also by Joyce's Ulysses. Like Ulysses, the novel takes a classical myth and uses it to structure a contemporary, partly autobiographical story. In this case, the mythology of the Aeneid is used to tell the story of Richard Ennis, a frustrated composer and soldier stranded in the Education Corps in Gibraltar during the Second World War. The novel was completed in 1952, and it contains many of the themes and literary devices in Burgess's work of the 1960s. It's about a frustrated and unhappily married artist figure, trapped in a situation he despises, it contains references to Burgess's favourite literature, including Joyce and T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and it shows his nascent thinking about the philosophies of Augustine and Pelagius that would form the backbone of novels such as A Clockwork Orange and The Wanting Seed. A change to Burgess's artistic perspective came in 1968. In March of that year, his first wife died, marking the end of a prolific period of writing and travelling from a base in England. He married his second wife in September 1968 and became a permanent expat a few months later when he moved to Malta. This change in his personal life can be seen in the focus of the novels he produced after he left England. Whether spurred on by his new relationship or by a sense of freedom he found away from the literary establishment of London, Burgess began writing much more experimental fiction. 
The first of these experimental novels was 1971's MF, a complex retelling of the Oedipus myth, relocated to a fictional Caribbean island called Castita. Burgess was responding to Claude Levi-Strauss's published lecture, The Scope of Anthropology. Levi-Strauss noticed that incest myths evolved simultaneously in European and North American societies which had no contact, suggesting myth is universal. Burgess blended this with the most famous incest myth of them all, Oedipus. MF is a puzzle of a book. It is not clear whether Burgess is genuinely inspired by Levi-Strauss, or somehow sending him up by using his theories to create a carnivalesque quest narrative. In any case, MF marks the first in a series of experimental novels. In 1974, Burgess published Napoleon Symphony, which found its inspiration in a brief collaboration with Stanley Kubrick on his never-made film about the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. In the novel, Burgess structures the story of Napoleon's life, from his conquest of Europe and North Africa to his death on the island of St Helena, around Beethoven's Eroica, or Symphony No. 3, which was originally dedicated to Napoleon. The novel that resulted from this creative ambition is Burgess's most modernist work, linguistically complex and fragmented. He also returns to Joyce, giving his story of Napoleon a mythic framework, that of Prometheus, which also inspired Beethoven's ballet The Creatures of Prometheus. Here's Burgess reading a short section from Napoleon's symphony, in which Napoleon reminisces about his glorious reception in Paris while preparing for his next battle. MF and Napoleon Symphony were eventually followed by experimental novels such as Abba Abba, Beards Roman Women, and 1985, the latter of which is a creative response to George Orwell's 1984. The culmination of this experimental period is the novel which is widely considered Burgess's masterpiece, Earthly Powers. Published in 1980, Burgess was working on this novel for nearly ten years. It tells the story of Kenneth Toomey, a successful writer who becomes embroiled in the life of Carlo Campanati, an Italian priest destined to become Pope. It's hard to sum up the novel, as it operates as a thrilling coming-of-age story, a creative history of the 20th century, and a treatise on the reformation of the Catholic Church, among many other things. 
It's the novel that best sums up Burgess's diverse and mercurial career, and it's a fitting cap to a decade in which Burgess pushed literary boundaries and explored his artistic voice in creative and unexpected ways. By the time Earthly Powers was published, Burgess had moved from Malta to Italy to the United States and eventually settled in Monaco, which remained his permanent address for the rest of his life. This more settled existence influenced his writing in the 1980s, leading to a more reflective period in which he wrote a series of books inspired by his youth in Manchester. The Piano Players brings to life the Manchester and Blackpool of the 1920s and 1930s and fictionalises Burgess's father's life working as a piano player in the pubs and silent cinemas of northwest England. If The Piano Players is about Burgess's early life, Any Old Iron portrays the Manchester of Burgess's time at university. Both of these novels offer a nostalgic look back at a city Burgess loved, but at the same time he was working on these books, he was also writing his autobiography. Published in two volumes, Little Wilson and Big God, and You've Had Your Time, Burgess's autobiography is a raucous journey through his life, which uses all of his skill as a novelist to tell his story. As such, it reads as a blend of fact and fiction, but is no less entertaining because of that. The first volume covers Burgess's life up until he returned from Southeast Asia. The second is concerned with his life as a writer up until the late 1980s. Not only do these books provide an entertaining narrative about the various scrapes in which Burgess found himself, they also give valuable insight into his creative process, and as such have been the cornerstone of any research into Burgess and his work. As Burgess approached the end of his life, he published A Dead Man in Deptford, a companion piece to Nothing Like the Sun which tells the life story of Shakespeare's contemporary Christopher Marlowe. This can be seen as another novel in which Burgess is inspired by his own past, as he wrote his undergraduate thesis on Marlowe's Dr Faustus in 1940. Throughout Burgess's career as a novelist and educator, the work of the Elizabethan playwrights and poets was a primary interest, and along with the two novels, he wrote a biography of Shakespeare, short stories and many lectures. He also wrote a musical based on A Midsummer Night's Dream with the composer Stanley Silverman. Burgess's career as a novelist was born out of a deep love of literature and a desire to engage with the work of his idols. Away from his novels, he wrote 25 books of non-fiction, including literary biographies of D.H. Lawrence and Ernest Hemingway, several books of literary criticism, and three collections of literary journalism. Burgess's creativity seemed endless. His other great love was music, and he composed over 250 pieces, including a symphony, which was first performed in 1975. Some of his music was inspired by the composers he heard played by Manchester's Halle Orchestra in his youth, such as William Walton, Edward Elgar and Paul Hindmith. He was also inspired by the music he heard on the stage and screen, and his compositions have flourishes which come from film music, jazz and Broadway. Along with his orchestral pieces, he wrote for classical guitar, oboe, recorder, piano, and more. He wrote songs for film and theatre, including a musical version of A Clockwork Orange and a musical adaptation of Joyce's Ulysses, titled Blooms of Dublin. Here's the song What Gets Into You All from the stage version of A Clockwork Orange, a duet between Alex and his parole officer Deltoid, which incorporates Beethoven's Ode to Joy. 
What gets into you? What gets into us all? Illogical evil. Illogical devil stalking the streets. The weasel in the flower of life. The weasel in the flower of life. Don't repeat. What gets into you? What gets into us all? Let me explain to you, oh my brothers. As for him and the others, it's no good saying a word to them. It's never occurred to them that energy's something built into a boy. But neither the church nor the state is teaching us how to create. So we've got to use energy to destroy. Destruction's our road to joy. What gets into you all? Is it biological drivel? It's unambivalent sin. It's the devil grinning within. God help us all. God help us all. God help us all. This is merely a potted history, a sketched map to navigate the large territory of Burgess's work. We haven't even mentioned books such as his James Bond spoof, Tremor of Intent, or his retelling of the life of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. There are many ways readers can go after reading A Clockwork Orange. If Burgess's invented use of language intrigued, then the next stop could be nothing like the sun. If it was the dystopian world, then the wanting seed is an apt choice. Inside Mr Enderby will satisfy readers impressed by the more comedic elements of the novel, and for those left wanting more of Burgess's philosophical ruminations, Earthly Powers is the book to go for. Burgess's work is so wide-ranging and diverse that it's impossible to present it all in this brief overview, intended for newcomers. If you are intrigued by Burgess, you can find much more information on our website, www.anthonyburgess.org, where you can learn more about his life, his writing, and everything in between. It's our hope that this podcast will help readers find their way from A Clockwork Orange to the myriad delights of Burgess's other writing. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. It was written and narrated by Graham Foster. For more information about Anthony Burgess, and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have any questions about Burgess and his work, you can find us on Twitter at Anthony Burgess. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.